Our scripture reading for today is from Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, read verse 4 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. Of course, the prophet Jeremiah is writing these things. He's writing them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing them um, in a time when the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, are in exile in Babylon. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, these words speak to us today in the same kind of way as if our Lord Jesus was teaching them to us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. But this is what the Lord does declare. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, but for you to have a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our Christ Covenant series. This is, we only have this week and next week left. And for those of y'all who are new, we, we have this tool, um, and we can put it on the screen here. We call it our Covenant Wheel. And, and the Covenant Wheel really sh- shares everything you need to know about our church, but it's, you have to understand it. <laughs> and so at the beginning, we, we have these deep core convictions. We are convictional people. We're, we're driven by what we understand to be true from what God has revealed us, that we're people called out by the gospel of Jesus, called together to be his kingdom people. And that, that in being those people called out by the gospel, there's a mission. There's a, there's a certain sending of us. There's a mission that Christ is about. And so we are the people of mission. So we have these three core convictions that are, are things that we believe, that we hold to. But of course, we're, we're not just people of some sort of mental ascent. We're a people of the heart, right? And so the, the things that we believe should lead to a changed heart, to change values. And, and so around those convictions, we have these values. I don't have time to go through them, but that's this layer here. But then around the, these seven values, we, we talk about very often here, nine behaviors. So not just a changed mind and a changed heart, but a changed life. It, 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 there's, there's things that we're called to as we follow our Lord Jesus. And then one that we're talking about today is, is bless the city. How we live in the city, how we are called as followers of Jesus, you could say it this way, as citizens of one city, 
how we are called as citizens of one city, namely the new Jerusalem, how we're called now to live in this city. For us, for our context, the city of Atlanta, Georgia. And this is a very important passage to understand that. And so there's three things I want to talk about with you. Exile, the idea of exile, the idea of welfare, and the idea of hope. Exile, welfare, and hope. For those of you kind of new to Bible study, um, we're going to cover a lot here today, so you really got to pay attention. But of course, God began to, to give hope to the world, began to display himself on earth through this chosen people, namely the descendants of Abraham. And God, through Abraham and his descendants, was to, to bring hope to the world, to, to show his glory. He was going to particularly bless this people, and he did. He gave them land. He, he spoke to this people. And through this people, as they followed after God, uh, they would be a blessing to the whole world. Through this people, uh, God's glory would be known, and, and God's plan was that his glory would be known through them, through them to the whole world. Now, it's interesting, that language that we see, and this is really so much of the story of the Old Testament, that language that we see, the author of the book of Peter, which is Peter, Peter picks up on this, and he says these same kind of things. So the same kind of plan that God had through Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, to the whole world is now being manifest, being worked out in the church, in us. It's the same kind of thing, that God is calling together a people through whom he's going to display his glory to the whole world, to all nations, to all peoples. So let's look, this is from 1 Peter 2. Notice the language that, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament text, all of this language will become very familiar to you. Notice the language that Peter is using here. You're a chosen race, right? A royal priesthood. We see obviously priesthood language throughout the old. These were ambassadors in a very real way for God. A holy nation. Okay, so there, just right out and says it. A people for God's own possession, right? So God has called these people to himself, and through them, he's declaring his glory to the whole world. And then that's what Peter goes on to say that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, and again, I mean, it continues. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, mercy from the Lord. So God's plan, this is God's plan through the descendants of Abraham, through the people of Israel. It's the same kind of thing he's working out us. Now, the problem with the descendants of Abraham, even though God blessed them, he gave them land, he gave them his laws, he spoke to them, they didn't obey. They didn't follow God. They, they didn't live in the mercy of God. They didn't live in the goodness of God. In fact, not only did they disobey God, they went after other gods. It was deeply offensive to God. I mean, if you could think about this, I mean, God had so blessed them. He'd so honored them. I mean, if you just think of as... Um, you know, as a, as a father to a child, when, when your children abandon things that are so precious to you and, and go other ways, go after other things that, that actually are offensive to you. And there, there's a personal aspect there. And that's exactly what we see happening with God in Israel. The, the people not only accepted his ways, they received his blessing, they, they rejected them and went after other gods. And so in response to that, God punished his people. Now, how he punishes them and the language that... We, we see in the Bible is that he actually punishes them with one of these enemy nations, namely the people of Babylon. So uh, we, right before the passage that we looked at today, Jeremiah 29, we read in Jeremiah 25. I'll just read it, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 25, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, 
because you've not obeyed my words. Behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Now, that's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar was, in a sense, God's enemy, but, but what God's saying here is I'm using Nebuchadnezzar, I'm using these people of Babylon to punish you, <laughs> to punish my, in this sense, he's become my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against these surrounding nations. And I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Now, again, we're covering a lot in a very short amount of time. But God's plan here that for their punishment, in a sense, to purify them, he was going to send them into exile. They were going to become exiles. And they became exiles. They had to leave their homeland. They had to go to this foreign place, this foreign city, Babylon, this evil city. And, and that's where they were called to live. Now, what's so interesting is the New Testament authors pick up on the same language, only it's not necessarily in a punishment sense, okay? So when we, when we read the New Testament exilic language, exile language, it's not saying because we're punishing, but it, it's the same kind of language that the New Testament authors are using how we are to now live as exiles. So let's go back. Oh, here we are, the first Peter passage. Okay, notice, notice kind of where... Uh, Peter goes. So we've just read 9 and 10, you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, people of God's own possession. And then look where he goes, verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners, which sojourners are like strangers, people that this is not their home. And then he straight up uses the word, exiles. You, you are exiles. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, this is very interesting. Peter is picking up on this same kind of Jeremiah language. He's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, and they were living among people that didn't understand Christianity. They were living among people that were increasingly opposed to Christianity. And it's a sense, what Peter is saying is, you need to learn from the exiles, you need to learn from Jeremiah. You need to learn from these exilic texts. You need to learn from the Jewish people when they were living in exile, because that's now actually how you are to live. That's kind of the normal Christian life now. We're called to live this exilic life. And again, he kind of echoes the same kind of Jeremiah 29 language. We'll, we'll, we'll look at it again, but if you, there's all this, seek the welfare of the city, build houses, participate in the city. We see the same kind of language here in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, right? So there's good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I don't have time to get into it, but read 1 Peter 2 this afternoon. He continues, he goes on about how they're to honor the emperor and honor everyone, to live in a visible and honorable way among the people that they've been called to as exiles. It's very interesting. Now there's a lot for us to learn here. I mean, for some of you, you grew up very Christian context. Most people around you are Christian. Maybe you went to Christian school, Christian family, Christian church. And now you've come to Atlanta and you're working in a secular company and you're surrounded by all these people that have a very different worldview than you do. Or maybe you didn't grow up that way, right? Maybe you, um, you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You grew up in a very secular home, but now you've come to faith. And now you're realizing, okay, <laughs> what Jesus is calling me to is actually very different than everyone around me here. This is... 
kind of awkward. How do I live in this world as someone that definitely holds to a different value system, that, that, that believes different things? And th- that experience is exactly what these Jews were experiencing here in Jeremiah. They'd been in Jerusalem. I mean, they were in Jerusalem. They were the dominant race. I mean, they were the only race. They were the, the major people group. Now, even though the people were disobedient, as we just talked about, the, the way that they framed the world, uh, the, the way they understood power structures, the ethic that they were basically trying to follow, it was all the same. It was all in agreement with them. It was their nation. It was, it was their place as, as if they were. But now they're in Babylon. <laughs> now they're in this place that is totally foreign to them. It's totally different to them. It's a totally different culture. Now, you may have understood this. You may feel this way. And, and there's two ways that people typically respond when they find themselves in a culture that's uncomfortable, that's different, that's different than what they're used to. And the first way is to assimilate, to just kind of adopt that culture, to just kind of make that your culture, to just become like the people that you're a part of. Now, that's actually what the Babylonians' plan was. That's, that's why the Babylonians brought them into captivity. They, they didn't want to just enslave them. They didn't want to just, they, they actually wanted them to become more Babylonian. They wanted them to adopt the cultures of the Babylonian empire, the, the, the ethic, if you will, of the Babylonian empire. They were trying to get them to assimilate to a different worldview, to a different understanding of the world. And, and, and really this is, so true even today, there's this strong pull to just assimilate, to just kind of take on the views of the world. I had a friend, um, so a few weeks ago, I, I preached for our young adults, what does the Bible say about dating? What does the Bible say about dating? And my friend, I saw it on Instagram or something, and was like, this is interesting. So she listened to it, and she called me up afterward, and she was like, hey, I listened to your sermon about what does the Bible say about dating? And she was like, I think you said some interesting things or some things I agreed with, but there were some things I disagreed with. And I said, oh, great. I mean, let's, what is it? And so she kind of told me, but, but her big issue is she was like, I, you know, I, I, it sounded a little prudish. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, do you really believe that, that sex is only reserved for marriage? Is it just reserved for marriage? Is that, is that really the right ethic for sexuality? And I said, well, you know, it, it all depends on your presuppositions, right? It, it all depends on how you're framing that. It all depends on how you answer the question, what sex is. And so as I said, if I had a secular understanding of sex, that, that sex is just to be used in the marketplace for personal enjoyment, for human fulfillment, that I can go use my sexuality to try to get as much sex as I can, then I would say, well, if, if that was my worldview, then the Bible's view of sex is pretty lousy. <laughs> yeah. But if sex is a covenantal good, that actually God created to strengthen a lifelong covenant, a whole life covenant between a man and a woman, if that's actually God's purpose and design for sex, it's a sign of this union that exists. It's lifelong and whole life. It's a sign of a whole self-giving of one another. Well, then I think the Bible's view of sex is really good. In fact, it's actually the only kind of logical understanding of what sex could be. If, if I understand it's a marketplace good, it, it, it's something else. But if I understand it's a covenantal good, then, then it has to only exist within covenant. But it all depends on your presuppositions, right? It, it all depends on what's framing. Is it, is it kind of the context around you, a secular marketplace context, or some, something bigger from the Lord, from, from above? 
Do we actually believe that God has designed things in a certain way? The point I'm trying to make here is it's very easy in a world that has different presuppositions than you do to conform to those presuppositions, to assimilate, to just become like the world around you. It's very hard to to be distinct. It's it's very hard to hold on to distinctiveness in, if you will, to to use here, a Babylonian culture. But, But the text actually warns against assimilation. You know, it says increase. I think that's interesting. Don't decrease. Don't decrease. Don't, don't, don't be diluted. Increase. Keep having babies. Keep following the Lord. Let your numbers while you're there increase. Don't, don't just, don't, don't do what they want you to do. Don't, don't assimilate into the culture. Continue to increase. Now, you know, another thing that's interesting, that the age that we're in, along the lines of this conversation, Leslie Newbigin called this age a, a post-Christian West. And he says, actually, he's a missiologist. He says, it's the hardest age to evangelize. It's the hardest age to kind of reach for the gospel. And here's what makes it so hard. It was very easy in Babylon for the Jews to know what was Babylonian and what was Jewish, right? Because the Babylonian structures and the Jewish structures look very different. What makes our age difficult is it's a post-Christian West, And so our age has adopted a new ideology, namely a secular ideology, that in so many ways flows out of Christian, or I would say formerly Christian structures. (laughs) So Christian schools, Christian churches even, in the name of Christianity, put forward non-Christian ideology, secular ideology. Well, that's very hard to discern. That's that's very hard to to realize if if the structure is Christian, but it's putting forward a non-Christian kind of worldview or ideology. That's one of the reasons that that we hold so strongly to scripture here. How do we discern what is of the age or what is from the Lord? There has to be something bigger than just the structures that we have created, the structures that just exist around us. And we see this kind of thing both on the right and on the left. You know, it's, it's, it's on kind of both sides of the ideological aisle. So for example, a couple of years ago, Princeton Theological Seminary, Tim Keller was invited to give some lectures there. Um, but the offer was rescinded because of his view on marriage and sexuality, just what we were just talking about. So that's very interesting. Here you have a Christian seminary rejecting a Christian pastor for holding to Christian doctrine, right? Well, that's very hard to discern. That, that's kind of this, that's very hard to discern what is Christian and, and what is secular. And you see the same thing, you know, again, on both sides of the political aisle. You know, recently I've heard a lot of things of, you know, we don't need to turn the other cheek, but we need Christians to stand up and punch back, okay? You hear that kind of language. So here you have, in the name of Christ, from so-called Christian pulpits, people saying things that are actually very contrary to the teaching of Christ. That's just modern secularism, but it's being put forward in the name of Christianity. It's very hard to discern what is of the Lord and what is of the age. And thus, it is very easy in this age to just assimilate, to just take on what is in the age. But of course, the text warns against that. Don't decrease. Keep having children. Keep growing your people. But then on the other side, one of the temptations that people have in an age like this is just to totally separate, right? Say, you know what? 
the age is going to hell in a handbasket, right? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to totally separate. We're going to form a little Christian enclave. I, I'm tired of having to explain why I believe what I believe. I'm just going to surround myself with only Christian people that kind of echo what I believe. And this is what we're going to have. We're just going to have a little Christian enclave where everybody kind of agrees with me. Now, the interesting thing about that is if that's your if that's your position, then your view of the city actually is just to exploit the city. What oftentimes we see is those people, they have these Christian enclaves, they go into the city to make money to get the goods of the city, but they have no concern for the city. In fact, they, they don't have a, a, a concern for the age, they, they only hate the age, they war against the age. That's this separatistic, this, this separatistic kind of ideology or worldview. So there's a lot of tension here. There's two great pulls. We're, we're often pulled this way or this way, but, but I, I believe what we see in the text here is to stay in this distinctive present era, to be distinct, to not be of the age, but to be present in the age. It's also interesting, back up here, I'm told to scroll slowly here. Oh, I went the wrong way. Sorry. Okay, we also see in the text, now this is what verse eight and nine are all about, this non-separatist kind of clause. There's this warning, you may have read, heard me read this, that there's this warning here about the, the, the prophets. Don't let these prophets and diviners deceive you. Don't listen to them. And God says, I did not send them, right? And then what he does say in, uh, what he does say in, chapter, in verse 10, he says, what I say, what I say, so verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, so 70 years. So what's going on here is there was prophets that were saying, the exile's not gonna last that long. Don't settle down. We're going back. God's gonna bring us back. It's all gonna be okay. I've heard from the Lord and we're going back, right? It's this prophecy of the age, right? And people like to hear this, right? It was prophets that were kind of coming up things that people enjoyed hearing. They were just exploiting the people and God's warning against them. He says, don't listen to those guys. I didn't send them. Listen, you're gonna be here 70 years. That's what it is. And I have my purpose in this. But when that time is completed, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to Jerusalem. You're in exile. It's part of your punishment, but I have you there for a reason. And I will bring you back, right? I will bring you back to this place. This is very instructive for us as Christians, right? You know, Augustine said, as soon as you become a Christian, you are immediately a citizen in, in two countries. <laughs> you immediately get dual citizenship. You ever meet friends that, you know, they have like a passport. I have a friend who's Spanish. He's got a Spanish passport and American passport. I think that's so cool. I've, I've been trying to figure out how to pull that off. It's hard, you know. Well, I kind of have that, though, in Christ. I'm immediately a citizen in two cities, in two countries. I'm, I'm, a mem- I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's my actually primary citizenship. But I'm actually still a citizen of the United States, of Atlanta, Georgia. And that's incredibly instructive to how we're to now live. We're both. We're present. I'm a citizen here, but we're distinct. We have a different value system. We have a different identity. We don't have to get an identity from this age. So how do we do this? How do we live here? How do you live as a citizen of both worlds? And that brings us to the point number two, which is welfare. Welfare. I want to go back to verse five. So how do we live? Well, there's a lot of instructions here, right? 
you're in Babylon, so build houses, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives. So this is the increase part, right? Um, Increase, bear sons, have your daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. And then verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. So it's don't war against the city, it's actually engage in the city, be a part of the economy, build houses, do good for the city. Um, you know, eat their produce, be a part of the market of the city, but don't despise the city. Don't just exploit the city so you can create a little Christian enclave. Actually, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray for the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. Be engaged in the city. Now, this brings up another, I think, interesting theological point. I almost cut this out because it's very complex, but I'm, I, you're smart. And, and I can tell you're paying attention. If y'all were not enough, I'd skip this part, but I'm going to go into it. It's, it's a kind of a theological treatise of what is the city? Like, how do we understand? Is the city good or bad, right? And there's actually some theological debate on this. Genesis 4 is actually kind of where we first see the idea of cities. And it's, and it's interesting. So you know, if some of you know the Bible, you know the story of Cain and Abel. And very quickly, I think we're supposed to understand that story as Cain brought his offering to the Lord with Cain in mind, wanting the blessing of God, wanting, you know, wanting you know, to, for him to be pleased by God, to be pleased with Cain. But Abel brought his offering to the Lord with God in mind, because he loved God as an offering to God. He saw the goodness of God. And so, of course, God received Abel's offering, and he rejected Cain's offering. But rather than repenting, rather than saying, you know what, I've been living for myself here, I want to recognize the goodness of God, rather than repenting, Cain just said, well, i got to get rid of Abel. And so he killed his brother. And God punished him, and God's punishment was to send him out as a wanderer of the earth. But, and this is very important, before God sent Cain away, he said, I'll protect you. I'm going to take care of you. You're not going to be harmed. Now, what we see from there in Genesis 4 is that Cain goes out and builds a city. Cain goes out and builds a city. Now, I actually think, I'm going to conclude here that the city is good, but bear with me. I actually think that, that the city was actually one of the ways, it was the means by which God actually cared for Cain. And from this city building, he named it Enoch after his son. We see, and you can go back and read the text more closely later, but we see the development of things that you see in cities. So for example, they started developing livestock, right? Which livestock's part of how we feed the masses, which you need if you're gonna have a bunch of people living in a concentrated place. We start to see the development of the arts. Uh, the, the Jubal, the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe, so we see the arts in the city. We see Tula Cain, who was the forger of instruments of bronze. We see the development of tools. Again, oftentimes, the development of tools. I mean, we, we would understand this as not bronze tools, much of it, but like iPhones and, and tools that we use these days to help us go forward. So we see all of these kind of city things developing in Genesis 4 as a part of the descendants of Cain. So the question is, is it's from Cain, is the city good or is the city bad? Now, again, I think ultimately the city is good. Of course, the Bible ends with a city, <laughs> the heavenly city. Uh, we, when we see this development, even things like the arts and 
the tool making and, and the using livestock to feed people. This was all things that God had in mind in his creation that we would cultivate and develop this created world. So the city is good, but where it goes bad is when you approach the city with the spirit of Cain. <laughs> we never learn that, that Cain lost this kind of self-serving, self-protecting, self-glorifying spirit. So the, that's where so much of the issues of the city come from. Rather than using these things that we see in a city, the arts, instruments for good, we only see them for selfish game, for the, for the spirit of Cain that we may be propped up and not God. So in a city, living in a city like ours, realizing that we don't want to have the spirit of Cain, how do we live? How do we live in a city like Atlanta, not assimilating, but not separating, not exploiting the city, but seeking the welfare of the city. James Davison Hunter has written a lot about the tension of the age. And I just wanna say it's a tense age. And you're gonna to have to, you're gonna to to get used to that. <laughs> if you wanna survive, you understand some of these tensions. So we don't wanna assimilate, right? That's one way to relieve the tension, just become like the city. We don't wanna separate, that's another way to relieve the tension, right? I'm just gonna put people around me that always agree with me, that echo my worldview all the time. We don't wanna be driven to despair, right? Oh, there's nothing we can do, this is horrible. But the other side of that tension is pride, self-righteousness. And you see this a lot too. People are drawn to, well, look at all these horrible people. They, they war against the city. If only everybody could be like me. If only we could be right like I am. It's a self-centeredness and a self-righteousness. So there's a tension between despair and pride, assimilation and separation. There's also a tension between conformity, just becoming like the city and withdrawal, draw, drawing away from the city. And what we see in this text that's so helpful, this Jeremiah text that I really want you to get today is what God is calling these people to, is to, in the tension, to live out a distinctive presence in Babylon, to seek the welfare of Babylon, to increase, to not become like the Babylonians, but to seek the welfare, to seek their good, that God might show a piece of his glory in Babylon, Stay faithful, be distinctively present in Babylon. And I just want you to hear this. It's the same thing that he calls you to, to be distinctively present in this age, this age of great tension. God is saying, be, no, don't, don't separate, don't assimilate, be distinct, but be present. Seek the welfare of the people around you. Seek the welfare of this age. And we see the same kind of things. Peter is picking up on this. Let's go back to 1 Peter 2. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, right? Don't assimilate to the age. It's totally given to the passions of the flesh. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Seek the welfare of them. They may speak against you as evildoers, but they will see your good deeds. Right? You're doing good for the city. And ultimately, that will bring glory to God on the day of visitation. Be distinct, but be present. Don't war against the Gentiles. Honor the Gentiles. Don't be filled with pride. Be humble when they see your good, day, your good deeds, right? We're not withdrawing. Our deeds are visible. Plant gardens. Start businesses. Just don't do it for the sake of yourself. Don't do it in the spirit of Cain. Don't exploit the city. Seek the good of the city. And then the city will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, all this leads us to the third point. You say, okay, how do I live in the tension? 
How do you, I mean, let's be honest. Like, how do you live in the tension? How do you not give over to despair? How do you not give over to pride? How do you not just conform? Because that's a lot easier. Or how do you not just withdraw? Because you're well, that's easier. How do you stay distinct following a different God, if you will, in an age that disagrees with you? Because let's be honest, it gets exhausting. It gets tiring. It's, it's, it's off-putting. It's, it's not fun. How do, how do you live in this age? How do you do it? And that brings us to this point of hope. All right, let's go back to verse 10. Now, I don't mean to ruin Jeremiah 29, 11 for any of you. I know you got it cross-stitched somewhere probably. I don't mean to ruin it for you, but I'm about to ruin it for you, okay? But hopefully not ruin it that much, okay? So, so let's, uh, let me just look at this, okay? So you got to get this right. Here's the context. God has just told them, seek the welfare of the city, build homes, plant gardens, be in Babylon. Don't decrease, right? Don't assimilate, increase, but seek the welfare of the city that I'm calling you into. And then he says, and here's the, here's the motivation here. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, 70 years, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise. I will bring you back to this place. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. (laughs) The rest and the hope that they were going to find is in 70 years, right? So if you've been using Jeremiah 29, 11 for like, man, next week it's gonna get better because God knows the plans he has for you, declares the Lord. You're misinterpreting, you're misapplying that text to your life. Now, God in his kindness does give us evidence of his kindness and mercy and grace in this life, but I want you to hear this. The real fulfillment, the real hope, you can live in Atlanta, distinctively present, because you know you're a citizen of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. You know you have this future age, when all will be set right, when all will be well. And actually, all of this in Jeremiah is pointing to that. Of course, they, after seven years, they did go back. The, the Persians took over the Babylonians, and they had a different administrative agenda. And so they sent all of these Hebrew people back to their homeland. And it was good for a time, but of course, the people still sinned. They still struggled. They needed a greater Savior. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. He has sent us this great Savior and you know what Jesus is? You know what Jesus really is? You know what he is? Have you ever understood this? You know what Jesus is really like? He's an exile. I mean, who's more of an exile than Jesus? I mean, who is living in a stranger place than Jesus is living in? He, he came from heaven. He came from the throne room of God to come. He's God himself, and he came to be a man. You want to talk about uncomfortable? <laughs> You want to talk about strange? You want to talk about humble? You see, Jesus lived as an exile, don't you see? Now, he was present. He was present. He was among us, but he was distinct. He was righteous. He didn't fall into the ways of the world. He always sought to please his father. He always did what his father, he was distinctively present in this age. He was righteous. He always followed his father's will, yet he was so present. He dined with tax collectors. He dined with sinners. He hung out with the prostitutes. He didn't fall into some sort of self-righteous mode. No, he was present in the age. He was distinct. He was righteous. He was holy. He was pure. 
but he was present. Don't you see? This, this is how our Lord lived. The great exile. And you know what he did? He sought the welfare of the city. He sought the welfare of the city in the most profound way. Now, for us seeking the welfare of the city, he might look at look like us going on and bearing burdens and helping people pay rent. And, you know, this is what we, we talked about, helping clean up housing and, and doing those kinds of things. But, but in the most profound way, Jesus took on our greatest burden, a burden that we could never deal with on our own. The burden of sin, the, the burden of our sin before a holy God. He took on that burden and he didn't just give himself a little bit to that. He gave himself completely to that. He died. He who knew no sin became our sin. He died in our place. He took on our greatest burden so that we could be set free. Don't you see that he is the greater savior, the great savior, and you know what he is doing? And right now he is doing it. He's inviting you in, those of you who are in him, those of you who look to him, those of you who have believed in this great exile, he is inviting you to this eternal home, this new Jerusalem. He's given you the dual citizenship. He's given you citizenship in a greater home. Now, if you believe that, if he is your Lord, if, you're, if that's where you are, don't you see how that'll change the way you live in this life? I mean, let's be honest. We all go out to some degree or another trying to exploit the city, trying to say, give me a good name, give me wealth, give me comfort, right? But if we really got this, if we really realized that we already have wealth, <laughs> that we already have comfort, we already have an identity. My true identity, I mean, who cares what you guys in Atlanta think about my house? I've got a mansion in the only city that really matters. It's a, and it is way nicer than any of y'all's houses, I'll just tell you. I've got a mansion in the only city that, never matters, that really matters. And guess what? It's an eternal city. It doesn't end. It doesn't go away. It doesn't fade. It doesn't get rusty. And you guys, homeowners, I look at my house all the time. I'm like, why did I ever buy this thing? It's just chores everywhere. I mean, I love it. But, you know, even yesterday, I was just looking at this thing. I, I had just cleaned up my outdoor patio. so nice. Like two weeks ago, and it was a disaster. No, I have a better home. I have a better identity. I'm a citizen of the new Jerusalem. And if you really believe that, that God is, is going to bring us home, then, then you'll be able to move out in this city with so much poise and so much confidence and so much compassion, you'll be able to seek the wealth of the city. You'll have a heart for these people. You'll be able to distinct from them. You won't need them and their approval. You'll actually be able to love them, don't you see? You know what Jesus did with his followers? The great exile. You know what he did with his followers? He says to us, you know, Billy just talked about this, the Great Commission. He says, the great exile says to us, if you're a follower of Jesus, go be in exile. Don't live like this is your home. Go out into the nations. Go out into the neighborhoods. Go be my witnesses. Go be exiles. Don't live like this is your home because it's not your home. You're, you're just here. You're here for a time. But one day there will be a great indwelling, a great calling. And Jesus, just like we see in this text here, we see at the very end. Let's, let's look at it real quick. God says, I'll be found by you. I'll restore your fortunes. And I will gather you from all nations. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. And, and in the same way, that's exactly what Jesus is doing with his church. He sent us out as exiles to live for the good of the heavenly city and to live for the good of this city. And one day there will be a great indwelling. We were all called back 
to enjoy him, to live with him forever. Do you live like that's true? Is that how you live? Is that what, is that what defines your life? Is that how you live? Are you living in the spirit of Christ, who for the joy set before him, because of the future hope he had, endured the cross, endured the hardest thing, was courageous even when his, everyone was rejecting him? Do you live like Jesus who, rather than taking, he was in the same nature of God, he had everything of God. I mean, who has a resume like that? Jesus, who was in the very form of God, right? He took all that and what did he do? He didn't leverage it for himself, he leveraged it for others. Do you live like that? He humbled himself, he became a servant to the point of death. Two thoughts, and it'll be closed. I'm going long, but y'all just gotta forgive me. Two thoughts. Number one, the only way that this works, the only way that you can do this is through the local church. You have to be a part of a local church. You'll give in, you'll assimilate, you'll separate. You, you can't do this unless, in, in a sense, we have this regular rhythm as a local church of gathering and scattering, okay? If you're always scattered, <laughs> then you'll just assimilate, right? You'll conform. If you're always gathered, you're separate, right? I mean, by definition. The, the, the beauty of the church and what the church is called to do, how the church is to be understood as a body of believers called out by the gospel who gather and scatter, <laughs> who are called together as a kingdom family and who scatter as kingdom ambassadors. That's, 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 what the, that's, that's what we're doing. So right now we're gathering. And don't you love to gather? I sure love to gather. We were talking about last week, we had our deacon elder ordination and somebody said afterward, I didn't want to leave. It felt like heaven, you know. And, and we had the meal afterward. And I said, you know what? It, that's, that's the point. <laughs> that is what we're doing here. We're acting out heaven. We're reminding ourselves of heaven. We're living out the gathering of the saints. And you need this because when we gather like this, you're reminded, oh yeah, I am a citizen of an eternal kingdom. Oh yeah, I do have a greater identity in Christ. Oh yeah, I am loved by the great exile who gave everything for me. And when you gather, you're then able to scatter and to scatter and to go out of the world with compassion and poise, realizing, look, God's given all of this to me. He's entrusted this to me, not just to use for myself, but to use for the sake of the city. So you're only gonna be able to do this if you're a part of a great local church that, that then can go out with the good news of the gospel. Don't you, don't you know what, the, what kind of news you have? You know, every other religion goes out with advice, Every other worldview goes out with advice. Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones once talked about that in a sermon. He says, you know, every other religion's like an advisor. If you're in battle and the war advisor comes and they say, well, you gotta do this, and you gotta do this, and you gotta do this. You go out and you act and you hope maybe it'll work. But you go out with fear and with trepidation because you don't know if it's gonna work and you just are trying your hardest and it creates great anxiety. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but you know, the gospel doesn't mean good advice. The gospel means good news. And if you're in a battle and a herald of good news comes to you and says, guess what? Good news, we won. We won, the battle's over, it's, we're winners. Now there's still, there's still something to do, right? You're, you're still active. You, you respond to good news with activity. It's not, it's not that you just sit there and do nothing. No, you respond to good news with activity, but you respond from something, not for something. And you're able to go out of the world from the place of people loved by God, for people that can know God, that God has also called to himself. 
with this good news. So you have to be a part of a local church. And then second, and here's a, it's a question. And look, I realize everybody here comes from a different socioeconomic and racial and family background. So, but, but to some degree or another, God has entrusted you with things. He's entrusted talents to you. And so here's the question. What are you going to do with that? What are you doing with your talents? What are you doing with the privileges that God has given you? What are you doing with that? How are you using that? Are you going out in the spirit of Cain and just trying to exploit the city to build a bigger name for yourself? Or are you going out in the spirit of Christ? You know, C.S. Lewis has this little essay called The Inner Ring. And he says, you know, we all want to be in the inner ring, right? There's always a group. I want to be a part of this group. I want to be part of that group. I want to, I want to get in there. If I could just get in there, then I would be somebody. And you get in the inner ring, and you know what you realize in the inner ring? There's an even better ring. It's really the ring that you really want to be in is that ring. So then you, you know what you do? Is you take all your wealth and your influence and your resume and you build it up and you exploit it and you say, well, now will you let me in the better ring? And then you get in the next ring and you realize, well, actually the ring you really want to be in is this ring. And he says, it's never ending. That's the spirit of Cain. What are you doing with your privilege? Are you taking it and using it just so you can keep getting in the better ring? Or are you more like Christ who took what he had in the very nature of God, again, who has a resume like that? In the very nature of God, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient for our sake. He took that, and he leveraged it for us. He died for us so that we could have fellowship with God. And you know what he's doing now? Right now, Jesus is preparing a home for you. Right now, Jesus is preparing a home for you, an eternal dwelling place, a great reward, 70 years <laughs> I'm going to call the nations. There's going to be an indwelling, and I will be with you, and you will be with me. Is that what's framing your life? Is that how you're living? You know what else Jesus is preparing for us? He's preparing a meal. One day, the saints of God will be with him around the table, celebrating his victory. And you know, I can't think of a better way to end today than by us taking the Lord's Supper together. To remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it before his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. I've taken all that I have. I've taken everything that I have and I've given it to you. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood. The most precious thing I have, his own blood. He said, this is my own blood given for you, leveraged for you, the great exile has been sent into the world to give his life for you. If we know him, <laughs> we will live like him. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. I pray, Father, that even now as we have gathered, we would look more fully to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured your calling on his life, endured the cross, and is now, Lord, seated with you. And so, Father, I pray that for the joy set before us, that we will be with him, we would endure your calling on our life. We would seek the welfare of the city, we would live for others, we'd live for your glory, Lord. May the spirit of Christ be in our hearts, not the spirit of Cain. Was to use, I pray that you would use this meal now even to encourage us toward this faith. I pray.
in Jesus' name.